I just bought a million and a quarter dollars worth of new equipment in the last three weeks and not going to lie, I'm a little anxious about it. I see a couple extra wrinkles. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> From that frowny face. I mean, six-year contract, first two years, triple the business. I've already turned you gray over the last eight years. Yeah, so sure, yeah. now these new machines and growth is making you wrinkly. It's gray and wrinkly, yeah. <laughs> Jim, did you know that ThomasNet has marketing services like SEO and video? Jason, I know now. I should talk to them about my next marketing project. Tell me more about what they offer. Yes, you should. The ThomasNet team includes digital marketers and degreed engineers who understand the complexities of manufacturing. They know the keywords that buyers are searching for. Well, that certainly resonates with me because I need people who know and understand our industry language and can connect the dots with authenticity. So visit thomasnet.com today to view their industrial digital marketing services and learn more about the marketing solutions that have helped thousands of manufacturers and industrial companies grow. Hey guys, Jason, Jim. Yes. Are you pumped? I am. I just pumped last night on the weights, man. Oh yeah? Okay, well, what pumps Jim up? Music. Okay, let's hit it. If the sound of a machine tool removing metal gets your blood pumping, then you are Metal Working Nation. This is Making Chips, where we talk all things metalworking, engineering and design, production and tooling combined with business best practices, technology, marketing, news, and new media for manufacturing professionals. Here are your hosts. Let's make some chips. Welcome to Making Chips. I'm your host, Nick Golner, and I'm here with my two friends and co-hosts who are both owners, and they're both very extreme. And today, we're going to talk about extreme ownership. Well, Jason's extra, right? I've been accused of being extreme and yes. being extra. Yeah. I know. I think about you, your poor wife, all the time. I know you're not Catholic, but I'm constantly doing the sign of the cross for her. Yeah, there's a lot of eye rolling that happens in our house. I feel bad for her, too, and I just picture the Sarah McLaughlin commercials with like the dogs, <laughs> that, where it's like, <laughs> she's running around the house trying to follow all of Jason's whims. And it's just like, you can help her out in the arms of an angel. <laughs> you can help Amanda out. Wait, you just called an Amanda an abused dog. <laughs> so if you go to makingchips.com slash Amanda, you can make donations to her like because you feel bad she for her being PayPal. married to me. No, but it's funny. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and I always tend to be friends with other people who are extreme and extra. And he was like, I always tell people when I first meet them, like, I'm an acquired taste. It might take six months. For, you might hate me for six months. Six months, then, eight years. <laughs> yeah, you never exactly. Know. <laughs> but then after that, you're going to love me. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Speaking of interacting with your wife, you're both business owners and you work together quite often. So why don't you tell us how the end of the year looks for Zengers and Black, your two businesses? It's very bright. We're having a great year, very optimistic about 2023. I was just telling Jim this morning, I was like, we're working on three, maybe four acquisitions right now. Oh, wow. Great. So, great. I mean, and we're also, we have into 2022, we also have scheduled for onboarding. So December, January, February, March, we were booked out with integrations and vending machines being scheduled. So I was meaning to ask you this. I was on the West Coast my last sales trip, and one of the big industrial supply companies that we had worked with in the past was just acquired by another even larger I know one. who you're talking about. You don't have to mention the name, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah. And so is that like a theme right now? Is there a lot of... There's like, a lot of M&A going on yeah. in my industry right now. And it's funny because 
even though there's a lot of roll-ups happening, I had a meeting. The head of procurement flew into Chicago to meet with me and another distributor because they have several plants across the United States. And you would think that in their mind, the head of procurement for a Fortune 50 company, Fortune 50, so one of the 50 biggest companies, this is actually probably global Fortune 50, one of the big 50 biggest companies in the world who were a supplier to, flew in to come meet with me and another supplier because they cover one of their other plants. And they are not happy about these big roll-ups in the industrial supply industry because they don't service their accounts. And they believe that we can service them way better than what their current supplier can service them and do it at the same pricing model or even better than what they're doing because the playing field from a pricing standpoint has been kind of leveled. And this distributor that you were talking about, so shout out to John. I had a conversation with a listener of the podcast from me from the Metalworking Nation who had called me to ask about the miscollection episode that you and I did, Jim. And he actually gets serviced by that particular distributor you're talking about. And they don't get service. And so that's the trend amongst these companies that are getting rolled up into these bigger yeah, yeah interesting. So, I thought that might be the case that there's a lot of like kind of roll ups as you yeah. Call so it, because so. of these factors, I'm very optimistic about the future. You know what I mean? It's easy to roll up my industry. It's not as easy to roll up like a company like Jim's. Yeah, you know what I mean? They're trying to do it. Like you probably see this, Jim, where they're trying to roll up job shops like yourself. But both of our business, there's such a high service aspect to it that it's really hard to do that. Right. Right. Well, speaking of Jim, your company's growing too, but more on the organic side, I would imagine. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yes, literally, we are going through the largest growth potential in the last 50 years right now. I just bought a million and a quarter dollars worth of new equipment in the last three weeks and not going to lie, I'm a little anxious about it. I see a couple extra wrinkles. Yeah, for sure. For sure. (laughs) From from that frowny face. I mean, six-year contract, first two years, triple the business. It's almost... I've already turned you gray over the last eight years. Yeah, So now these new machines and growth is making you wrinkly. It's gray and wrinkly, yeah. (laughs) So, okay. So it's all good. Good news for you. That's amazing. I'm ready for the challenge. When you have opportunities... You need to accept them and take them on, right? Yeah, you can't just you can't just say no. Operate out of a place of fear all the time, right? So. You had to push yourself out of your comfort zone, and you have to think strategically: Is this a good decision for the future of the business? And are there going to be pains? Hell yeah, there's going to be pain. Are people going to be uncomfortable? Hell yeah, people are going to be. Are we talking about Jason's upcoming colonoscopy again? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm going to be very uncomfortable next week. There will be some pain. <laughs> There's only a little bit of uncomfortableness, but once the profofol gets into your veins, you'll be fine. But anyway. So yes, how are things at AME? Well, before we go there, Jim, I know I make a joke about like, why did you wait until your 60s before you started growing your company? I know, which is it's true, crazy. but like, it is crazy. I'm genuinely happy for you. And I'll tell you why, because I think that for a lot of people, when they kind of like sign that document saying I'm retired, it's almost like a death sentence at that point. So I'm happy that you're growing now and you're like, I'm not seeing retirement on because you should be able to work for a lot longer. And your growth should allow you to get to the point where you're like, okay, now I'm in that actual CEO position where I can just oversee everything and I don't have to take on a lot of the tactical stuff. And you could put that burden of the stress on other people if you can do that. And that's a challenge unto itself, which I think I want to talk about that in a future episode. Hiring is a whole nother problem right now. I mean, hiring is one aspect of engaging your team in order to take that burden off of you. Right. But hopefully you can do it. (laughs) <laughs> no, hopefully you don't have to retire anytime soon. So you bring up retiring being a death sentence thing. And I've said this quote a few times, but my 90 plus year old grandfather I know. still wow. works. 
I think of that. And, and people wow. say, hey, why don't you retire? And he always says, well, I have a lot of friends who retired and they're all dead. <laughs> they're all in the grave. <laughs> That's really kind of I funny. know. I just heard my friend from childhood is going to retire in January. He just turned 60. And I'm like, oh my God, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? I mean, you can't golf every day. Collect seashells, right? Right. There's a quote that I wanted to bring up. This is from a guy named Dan Sullivan, which I follow a lot of his work. And his quote is, retirement is an email to the universe to schedule a body pickup. <laughs> that's great. I mean, for the most part, that's, I would say 85% of the time that's true. Some people thoroughly enjoy retirement. This is a 78-year-old man who has like five different podcasts and is still running a I company. Love that. That's great. So, Well, let's dive right into it. We're so talking about the what outlook. What is extreme ownership all about? Yeah. Now? And in the next episode, you can ask me how things are going with uh, Hennig and AME. But I'll do that. I want to move on. I want to talk about the news first before we get into extreme ownership. Do you so, have manufacturing I news? do. And it's all about the outlook for 2023, which is great. Interesting. We were just talking about that loosely before we hit the record button. Right. So um, the theme of this survey, and by the way, the survey is done by LBMC, which is the largest professional service solutions provider in Tennessee. Another long acronym. Yeah. So basically, they're like consulting and professional services company, and they focus on manufacturing. And so... They're out of Tennessee? Yeah. Yeehaw? Out of Tennessee. So the Manufacturing Outlook survey had a theme to it based on their findings, and it was foundations for success. So a lot of what manufacturers are saying is like, hey, we're trying to basically bolster our company, make sure there's a secure foundation that we can build on. So four of those key survey highlights were, number one, more local and regional strategic partnerships, which actually, you asked about my business. So like we're becoming a regional partner to a machining automation company, yes, which you are. you've just invested in that equipment. So I think it's like, and to Jason's point earlier, like you can't just have these big mega companies that try to have intimate service everywhere in the world. Sometimes you need strategic partnerships it for doesn't that. Happen. So it doesn't work. So manufacturers are placing more trust in their regional economies and are looking for supplier relationships closer to home. National economic prospects are perceived with less optimism, while attitudes about the international economy are trending towards pessimism for 2023. So who's trending towards pessimism? Attitudes about the international economy. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. International is different. Yeah. I mean, yep. do you hear about all this stuff going on in China yes. with like the rioting and, so, yeah. no bueno. and welding people inside their homes and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's wow. crazy. So the second insight. See, my news shows that. Is about what? All that stuff that's happening in China. So the next insight was more automation to augment smaller labor pools, which... I think is kind of like, oh, yeah, that's what, I, that's what I see. Yeah. Everyone's investing in automation, not just for automation in itself, but because the labor pools are just miserable right now. Miserable. So miserable. And that doesn't just mean like robotic machine tending or robotic manufacturing. It also means things like ERP systems. So more automation in how you process information. So again, this I is... I know, it's crazy. I think back just like seven years ago, a car machine and the changes that we've made have just been so crazy. Well, it's a foundation for success. That was yeah. the theme of this report. So, yeah. And if you think about that, you built your foundation with ProShop. You've made that investment. Right. Well, and it was a strategic investment. And then it leapfrogged what you're able to do as a business, just how you're able to process value from start to finish all the way to your customer. So it's another really, really good example in just our life here. Yeah. So it's funny, speaking of ProShop, this gentleman from the Metalworking Nation 
I was talking to him and he was talking about like growing pains and stuff like that. And I was like, over our just our private phone conversation, I was like, well, have you considered ProShop ERP? Because my understanding is that manufacturers who engage them for their ERP system, they credit them to a lot of their ability to be able to grow. And he was like, as a matter of fact, we're we just started into our integration with ProShop because of what he heard on Making Chips. And they've been a longtime sponsor of ours. We love them because the stories are authentic and they're everywhere. It's like every time we bring it up, there's another success story. So if anyone's interested in looking at ProShop as an ERP solution, how can they find them? Go to ProShopERP.com and fill out their form and they'll get back to you. Cool. Tell them you heard about them on Making And you can ask us about it too, specifically Jim who uses ProShop. So the third insight from this report is exploration of machine learning and analytics tools. So manufacturers acknowledged an uptick in R&D investment this year, which aligns with their top operational spending priorities for information technology tools, new product or service development, and business technology or intelligence data. So think like uh, machine monitoring and, and pulling data from your machines and what the machines can do with their own data to learn how to optimize a process. Uh, we talk about that quite a bit too. And then this is not surprising either. This fourth insight, less cybersecurity response than expected. What was it, Nick? Less cybersecurity response than expected. So what they're saying... What do you mean by that? So basically, the cybersecurity should be a bigger concern than it is uh, among the manufacturing community. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about that, and they said it's really bad. But think about our peers. Like, how often are they like, oh, I really need to fix my cybersecurity? It's one of those things like, you hope it doesn't happen to you, but right. until it does, you don't seem to care about it. I was it. sitting next to a guy that got scammed for 75000 He had to give 75000 to unlock his yeah, company. They ransomed oh, him, my yeah. God. So it's really interesting. So this global 50 company that I was speaking of, I had to put together a security and continuity plan for them, a plan and like a state of our company, because they needed to understand that us as a company, we will be able to withstand cyber attacks in continuing to service them. And I want to talk about that as another future episode on how to put that together. But we're on very good footing from a cybersecurity standpoint, but there's a lot of manufacturers out there that aren't. It says in the report, although the manufacturing sector was the most targeted industry for ransomware and vulnerability attacks in 2021, companies in this survey did not plan to invest a significant amount in shoring up their cybersecurity. We're making an educational investment next year in cybersecurity for our entire team. Yeah. Even though we're in really good shape. This was crazy. We got an email from my aunt who's one of our owners, that said... I'm waiting for it. It had specifics about details of other emails between her and somebody else and said, oh, yeah. we need you to do this, but it wasn't from that person. Yeah. What? So that they had been reading... So the, the thread showed back and forth? Yeah. And they we found like oh, where the little God. crack in our armor was and IT jumped all over and shorted What was all the up. crack? I don't know the technical reason, but I just know IT solved it right away. Can you find out? Because I want to do talk about this in a future episode. Yeah. I think it would be helpful for Metalworking Nation to understand some of the vulnerabilities that other people And if you're listening right now and you have like a really great IT person or someone who's strong in cybersecurity that would be a good like guest expert, send that our way because I think it'd be awesome to have somebody like that. Okay, lastly, and this is I think what everyone's thinking about. So what is the levels of optimism for manufacturers? Is this that range where it's like above 50, below 50? Who cares what the purchasing manager said? We know we're talking to each other and we're everyone's saying that it's going to be up next year. So this is the attitude about the regional economy. Right. So manufacturers surveyed have the most confidence in their regional economies, but the number of neutral responses indicate that there are many taking a wait-and-see attitude about the North American economy as a whole. So sentiments about the world economy show a more pessimistic attitude than the regional economy. So attitude about regional economy, there's neutral to somewhat optimistic, very optimistic, 
neutral, somewhat pessimistic, and very pessimistic. So that five-point scale. And 42% were neutral to somewhat optimistic. Only 5% were very optimistic. 5% were very pessimistic. So you can throw the top five and low five out. Yeah, yeah. 33% were neutral and 14% were somewhat pessimistic. So it's more in the middle. And 42% were more on the optimistic side of neutral and 14% were on the pessimistic side of neutral. So just interesting. I think that kind of aligns with what I'm hearing too. But how's that for some news? We're done? I like it. No, that's very helpful. Thank you. So Jason mentioned extreme ownership on a previous episode. I can't remember which one. Yeah. So I'll kind of tee that up. So my company, our first level of employee development is that we do a book club. So it's kind of like our entrance ramp into employee development. It's cheap, it's easy, it's voluntary, and it's very, very helpful. And then from there, we have like a lot more development that we will support, but that's the first level. And we did Extreme Ownership as one of our book club. It's great. It was, it was a great book. It's not I mean, specific to manufacturing necessarily, but it's about leadership. Yeah. It's basically, in a nutshell, it's how the Navy SEALs and the techniques that they employ can inform leaders and managers of companies. So we'll share this in the show notes. We'll give like an animated summary of the book. I love those where they kind of illustrate out the key themes of the book. And then there's a TED Talk from the author, Jocko Willink, who was a Navy SEAL commander. Co-author. There's two authors. And Leif Babin, right? So Jocko's the most popular of the two. But the TED Talk is just from Jocko up there. So And he tells a story about something that went wrong in Iraq and there was some casualties from friendly fire and they had to go to their commanding officers and explain it. And I don't want to ruin it for you, but they took extreme ownership of the situation. And this is kind of like a book review. We're going to talk about it, make comments, and then relate it to things in our manufacturing lives. So first off, it's like, why do military officers make amazing business leaders? Basically, and they why really do. Listen? Yeah. There's been so many success stories out founders of companies being ex-military. Exactly. So think about it. If you need to make a high-stake decision and you need to lead your company through tumultuous times, what's more tumultuous than life or death situations in war, right? And that's a lot of what leadership boils down to. So they kind of start by saying, like, here's why we should be listened to. The book starts with, like, the first part being focusing on the mindset of extreme ownership. So one of the statements, all responsibility for success and failure ultimately rests on your leader. And that's the same in manufacturing. And I think that all word is really the key word. And one of the things I took from it, because when you're a leader, I lead the sales organization for our businesses. And it's easy to say, well, this certain business is not performing or this certain region isn't performing. And I don't know. You're the one that feels like you're responsible, right? Yeah. Well, you have to. And I think I've been guilty in the past of kind of like being like, yeah, well, there's the problem. It's like, no, that's my problem to solve. And it's almost becomes like a fight to take responsibility. And this kind of like this just popped into my head, but this kind of like sparked a thought in my head that there's also like a principle in Christianity, which is outdoing each other and showing love. So it's not like when you're in a marriage and you're trying to figure out, well, why are we not getting along? It's not a matter of saying, well, I'm going to love that person when they love me. It's a matter of saying, well, I'm going to love that person despite them loving me. And they both should be saying that. And that's when you really have a good relationship. And that's extreme ownership. And it's the same thing with extreme ownership. It's like, well, I'm going to take responsibility for it. The CEO says, but then the person below him says, no, 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 no. I got this. I'm responsible. Well, and okay, I am going to kind of ruin the TED Talk, but you should watch it anyway. So- (laughs) <laughs> I haven't actually seen this. I read the book. But yeah, it's really good. It's a TED Talk on ex- from what's the guy's from name? From Jocko Willink. That's J-O-C-K-O-W-I-L-L-I-N-K. So he goes up there and he's like, 
basically there was friendly fire. The fog of war settled into this crazy situation. Things got disorganized. An Iraqi soldier who was fighting with us got killed. And I think it was two soldiers, actually. But they have to go speak to their superiors. And the guy who fired the shot says, it's my fault. The guy who was in charge of that commander group said, it's my fault. Everyone took ownership over it until ultimately says, Jocko says, it's not your fault. It's my fault. This is my command. And instead of being like dismissed or whatever, they were all honored for it. Right, because the normal principle would be that the commander would kind of get off scot-free because he'd be like, yeah, well, you kind of push the blame downstream. And you see that a lot in like change business. The paradigm. Oh, for Big sure. Big whatever, and then everyone's passing the buck. Of course. This is a no pass the buck theme throughout the book. Well, so. and that's apparently, I've never operated in that environment, but when I got my MBA, I was able to see like some antidotes of that. But there's a lot of where people really rise up in a corporate environment kind of backstabbing people. And it's unfortunate. I don't see that in my business. In small business, you can kind of eliminate a lot of that. But yeah, in corporate business, it's tough. So if you're a leader, your boss, the economy, your product, the competitors, the labor market, the pandemic, none of that can be to blame. And that means that leaders have to do these things. They have to acknowledge mistakes publicly to their team, admit where they failed, take ownership of that, and then probably most importantly, develop a plan to win. I have story in my mind where someone was always really great at being like, this is on me. I screwed up. And it's like, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, Like it's only half of it, right? What are you going to do about it? And so when teams don't succeed, like my example, if a region's not successful or if a business unit's not successful. Oh, you're going to take it out on yourself. It's up to me to ensure they've been properly trained. Right. They have appropriate resources. They were on board. There's correctly. a solid understanding of the seat definition of what they're supposed to be doing, yep. what the mission and the vision is clear to them yep. of what they were supposed to accomplish. We call it unambiguous and clear expectations. Yeah, there you go. And so like, let's take example from the metalworking nation. You have a milling department or milling function in your business, yes. right? So what if you're getting bad parts from the milling department? Well, it's up to the leader to understand, well, is the machinist new? Did we give him a task that he wasn't trained to train sufficiently to accomplish? Did we have standard work where it was very clear, standard work procedures? What if the machine's inaccurate? Maybe it's not even the individual. Or like, what if the whole process was foggy? It wasn't clear who was supposed to do what? So there's always something that can move up the chain to leadership where like, okay, this is what we as the leader, the department or of the business as a whole need to do to solve it. But what if all those boxes are checked? You've done everything and a team member consistently falls below the bar. If a team member consistently falls below the bar, the key to leadership is that the loyalty is to the team, not to the team member. So you think military, you don't think, at least I don't think a lot of like mushy gushy relationships and stuff. But this book is a lot about relationships, a lot about it. And the key is that the relationship is such that it's not like too close. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like, oh, we've got favoritism now. Right. Intertwined. That's a hard thing in business. It's really with your team members. It's hard to like. Yeah, customers, on the line. team members, customers, suppliers. Right. Yeah, I the know. loyalty needs to be to the team that your business, right, and to your team, right, and not to the individual, because then you're doing a disservice to the team. And it's one of those cases where it's the individual dragging the team down. Then that's when you gotta make some changes. I think about to draw a parallel to manufacturing. I think about examples from the metalworking nation and how challenging the labor market is right now. And so, like, that's awful. It's hard to let go of a competent machinist, someone with some trade skill. But I think there's an example at the table from each of us where we've had to do that this year. I don't know about you, Jason, but I know that like I've had to part ways with some key employees. Jim had to part ways with not an experienced machine. But I definitely know what you're talking about. And it's like it becomes harder to do it when there's not this like long line of people signing up to fill that void. 
But I think if you check the boxes of, okay, we've sufficiently trained this person. We made it very clear. We set the standard and there was just repeated offenses. Yesterday, we just revised our whole onboarding process on how we're going to do it. We went on the whiteboard in my conference room and just like went through every single thing and We're going to be hiring a lot. We want to do it right. We want to make sure that it's successful for everybody, for the employee and for the company and for the employees, the other people that they're touching. We have to create a sense of community and really drive the culture into them. That's going to be the big thing for success for the future. Well, culture is one thing and we need to get off subject because I think we could talk about this on a future episode. But the only thing I would recommend that you put into your hiring process is some kind of objectivity in your analysis of the person because you could be subjective in saying, well, like how this person measures up to our culture or core values or whatever else. But unless you have some other kind of like objectivity in the analysis, it's going to be hard to really make a clear decision that you could be confident in. So, but we'll save that. Yeah, it, it actually kind of segues into the closing part of part one of this book, which is about the mindset. And on the flip side of like what happens if there's failure and you have to replace a team member is what if the mission's a success? So if it's a success, the leader can't take any credit for the success. You bestow that honor on your team and then watch what happens, right? It'll come back to you from them. You create a team of people who honor each other, to your point, Jason, about marriage. And then conversely, like the blame game is what erodes the culture and what erodes the trust. Mm -hmm. Even if it's like accurate blame. You need to address that individually with the person. You need to create a culture of people who hold each other accountable and not this backward, behind the back infighting. There's a zero tolerance for infighting as a major theme to this book. A culture that gives honest assessments, identifying weak areas and coming up with plans to improve those is the kind of culture we all want. Yeah. And we're dealing with that right now. I mentioned that I haven't had to part ways with anybody in 2022 for those reasons. But we're dealing with some corrective action with an individual on team because I chose to bypass that objectivity in the hiring process because I was enamored from a subjective and personality standpoint. And now it's kind of biting me in the butt. You make a good decision. You make the best decision you possibly can. If it doesn't work out, you just chalk it up to what you... No doubt about it. But I think you need to be careful about making that decision as wise and like getting better at making that decision on an ongoing basis. You can always, because you talked about the process, you can always amp up the process. You can always get better at it. I'm not talking about hiring. I'm talking about onboarding. Well, both. Right, right, right. Because I think hiring, that subjectivity and objectivity plays a very key role. But onboarding, we feel as though once we've passed that, we've made the decision, we said, okay, we're going to hire Jason Zenger. He's going to start next Monday. What is the proper process for us to onboard? We actually did a whole timeline of day one, day two. What's the first thing we're going to do when that guy walks in the door? We're going to introduce him to everybody. Oh, yeah. We have that same thing. Yeah. You know what's one of my favorite parts of our onboarding process? What's that? Margaritas at the Mexican place down the street. I love that. I know which place you're talking about, too. <laughs> on the same day? On day no, one? No, no, no. It's not on day one. It's a legitimate part of our process. I like that. that. We go out and buying lunch for everybody. Yeah. No, dinner and margaritas. We don't do margaritas Since the boring bars on campus, that's where we tend yeah, to congregate. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So another example, you talked about hiring. Jim talked about onboarding. And then one thing that I've started doing this year is both self-reviews. So I created like a Google form for them to review themselves under the same criteria that I review my people and peer reviews. So 
the way we're structured, we have business units and we have regional guys. Regional guys sell all the products, but focus on a region. Business units focus on just one product everywhere that you can sell it. So they all rely on each other. So it doesn't necessarily matter just how I feel a person's doing. It's like, what do the people you rely on feel? As a business development leader, product manager, does your sales team feel supported, educated, equipped? And on the flip side, as the regional person, does the business unit feel like you're really moving the needle in the region and supporting them and bringing new customers? So it's like my opinion, the peer review and the self-review. And the key is to make sure that like we're giving honest assessments and we have plans to improve the areas where it's like consensus agreement, this is a weakness. So, and it's about checking the ego. Like I actually look forward to that for my own self. Like what do I need to do to improve? So part two is called the laws of combat. And just again, focuses on no scapegoating, no infighting and no siloing. So the leader has to be the one who always keeps the focus on the greater mission. So my theme for that is like when we have functions in the business that are too siloed, then you start to get like some tribalism and it might not be like scapegoating or fighting person to person, but like this department's letting me down or that department's letting me down. And so the leader who's in charge of all the departments needs to make sure that there's some sort of like mutual understanding and accountability of how they all work together. One of the themes for that is simplicity. The mission needs to be widely understood. And at any point, the lowest member of the team should be able to explain it clearly and concisely. I don't know if that is something that you guys exercise in your own business, but do you have like a... No, we're not that sophisticated. Do you have like a theme of the month or a theme of the year or anything like that? I have a theme of the week for my production meetings. Okay. And that's what I lead with. We have a theme of the year for our vision. Sure. So it's kind of funny. I don't have it in front of me, but our theme for 2023 is something along the lines of we create our own destiny. So it's kind of like... It's a little extreme ownership, right? Like, well, don't blame the economy or the customer. Well, that's exactly what it is. It's about not blaming the economy. We are the determinants of what happens. I love that. Yeah. And we do the themes too. Now, what I can't tell you is I think we would probably get like above 80% if I asked all my people, what's the theme of the year? But we could do even more to drive it forward. So it's 100%. This year was the year of the target, making sure everyone was target oriented. Everyone had that key. If I hit this number, the company will be successful. Next year, and we announced this at our annual sales and marketing summit, it's going to be the need for speed. And so that's my brother's thing. So it's one thing to have targets. You know, you got to hit. Next thing to like, make sure you're getting hit. Make sure you're hitting them on the right timeline. So we've uncovered so many new topics to be talking about for next year, but like the importance of having a theme is another good yeah, one. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to kind of go forward past the laws of combat section, but it's about simplicity, clear mission. Everyone needs to be able to explain it. Prioritizing is another huge factor. Prioritizing is So key. you can have death by a thousand initiatives. That's really hard to have like 1,000 targets that you need to hit? There's that famous analogy of the success of Apple came about because Steve Jobs came back to the company and he said, I'm getting rid of 80% of the products and we're going to focus on 20% of the products. Keep the main thing, the main thing. I think niches are a different thing. I think prioritizing only certain things over others is the important thing. It's kind of like us as a company, we started out as a company who sold tools over a counter. That was how my dad and my grandfather built the business. But now that's like less than 5% of our business. They weren't cutting tools. They were... No, they were cutting tools. Yeah, absolutely. But that was not a big part of your business at that time, right? Uh, it was big enough. Oh, yeah, okay. it was 25% at the time. It's okay. more now. But I mean, it was still just local shop owners selling over the counter. Now we've completely shifted our business model. And it almost come to the point where we're so de-emphasized and not prioritizing that because it would otherwise be a distraction to the business. Yeah. So one of the things that we're doing to make sure it's simple 
simple and prioritized is every business unit has to show on a one page, a product roadmap, like so a roadmap for growth. So here's the targets. Here's the yeah. initiatives. And if the priority doesn't fit in that roadmap, maybe it should be eliminated. Exactly. So like if we're having a meeting and we're talking about something that's not on the roadmap, it's like, well, do we need to amend the roadmap or stop doing what you're doing? So maybe one of the themes of the future should be run over your squirrels. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. We got to create some roadkill here. The third part is about leading up and down the chain. And like you two are owners of your business. I have a very tiny percent of ownership in my business, but I'm not in charge of everything. I own a function and I have bosses. And a lot of the people listening to this have a boss or bosses. And well, they're good guys. One of them's my brother, the other one's basically my uncle. But but he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. So it's how do you lead up and down the chain? How do you? Well, I think one of the themes of this is it's really impossible to truly manage hundreds of people. Yes. So you need to empower the leaders beneath you to make decisions. Like if you didn't have Ryan and every detail of everybody's job had to go, there would be all salt, no pepper. <laughs> I would not have any hair left. No. And everyone learns that as they scale their business. That's one of the things that they need to learn. Yeah. Yeah. It's about decentralizing the communication and the command. So we've tried to really focus this year on tiered management. So we have like our daily stand-up meetings in the shop. And then if there's any issues that escalate from that, it goes to what we call a level two meeting. And then that's kind of like the functional meeting for the manufacturing function or engineering function or whatever. And then there's the third tier, which is like the executive meeting. And so since we're so focused on timelines and dates now, anytime anyone misses a date, it moves up one level. And that's helping us be ruthless about the need for speed, the need for getting things done on time. But if we had to do that all the way through down to 100 employees or 300 employees, depending on Amy or Hennig, it's impossible. And that's sometimes where we bump heads with my dad. He's like executive level and then like trying to figure out what parts on the machine and what the runtime should be. And oh, stuff. he needs to get out of that. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you just kind of skip the middle. He needs to get out of that, out of his head. You kind of dive through like three layers of leadership. He's telling that guy what to do, right? Yeah. And then they have to listen, yeah. but then it kind of throws everything yeah. off. Dean said, I got to get this out of the machine right now. Where the hell did he come from? I'm going to defend him for a minute because I think that, yes, I agree with what you guys are saying. However, if there's something that you're passionate about and you can impart wisdom into the rest of the team in a manner that other people cannot do, then I think it's okay. As long as people know like this is where their pecking order is and this is wisdom that's being imparted that's not necessarily their boss. And I would imagine that your dad's doing it in a way that that's the case because your dad's probably not even going to follow up on it anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, exactly. Yeah. So I think that there's nothing wrong. So he'll miss the doing... daily management meeting. Yeah. And then he'll show up like yeah. 20 minutes later and be like, well, why are we doing this? It's yeah. Like, we him the and meeting. if anything, like they can create a meeting out of him and be like, okay, well, let's talk about what Dietmar suggested while he was <laughs> sure. doing his walkthroughs. You know what I mean? I don't see Well, this book that. actually gives like some how to avoid micromanagement tips and and so let's say you're in the Dietmar seat or the owner seat, right? President seat, whatever you want to call it. You want to focus on the big picture and you just want to look for holes or weaknesses. So it's not like a goal to try to solve that, but let's identify a weakness. And then instead of trying to solve it and propose the solution, ask the leader of that function what they need to make sure they can solve that, shore up the weakness. When we were out in California and we went and visited Haas, they were talking about how like Gene Haas still walks oh, that's through Gene. And, and makes suggestions and does all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure he's not following up on like a lot of that stuff either. But if you've got people behind you taking notes and be like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. Or no, we're not going to do that. That's a bad idea. I kind of like that culture, though, that Gene Haas is actually walking the shop yeah, floor sure. and making recommendations. I do that and- every day when I walk through the shop. I'm there. Like I told you guys before, the first thing I do in the morning is I say hi to everybody. I make sure I am increasing my relationship with them. And then I'm making suggestions 
and ask them why they're doing things. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, I'm not trying to like dig on my dad here because he's been awesome, but it's just funny. Like there's some things we all could do better. And so if you focus on the big picture, you look for holes, you ask the leader of the function what they need to solve the problem, and then you have them prepared to provide a clear problem statement and most importantly, a proposed remedy. That's part of this extreme ownership. So here's an example. So, hey, boss, we're off target on this initiative by X percent, and here's the reasons why. And here's some supporting data. It's not just my opinion. I think I'm going to need X, Y, and Z to solve this problem and get the result that we need. That's so much better than like, here's X, Y, and Z, and I decided for you. We'll quickly blast through the last two... Dichotomy uh, of leadership? Yeah, the last two parts. So Confident, not cocky. Yeah, he explains, right? Throughout the book, there's like a fine line you have to walk. So you want to be confident, but not cocky. And I would encourage people to read this book. It's a really great it's really book. Good. You want to be courageous, but not foolhardy. You want to be competitive, but also a gracious loser when you have to take an L. You want to be attentive to details, but not lost in the weeds. You want to be strong, but you also want to have endurance. You want to be a leader and a follower. And so this might be the one that stands out the most. Like when you delegate something as a leader, can you also follow who you delegated it to? Are you almost done with this? Because I have a comment on the whole thing when you're done. The yeah, other yeah. one, you want to be extra, but you also want to be quiet. Is <laughs> that, that one of them? There's one in there about quiet. I'm just joking. Maybe not. Never mind. But just be extra because then you're more like Jason. So anyway, he lists a bunch of that. Uh, we don't have to go through all of them. Jim, I want to hear your comment. Yeah. So I'm just kind of like taking a back seat and listening to you and trying to digest it all. And I think, my God, here I am at my age and running a small manufacturing company because it's really is small compared to AME and Google or Apple or whatever. And how does a small machine shop owner take all of these philosophies? Because you can't have a person like me who wears a million hats a day to like do all this and read a book and practice. I, I can answer that because we do a book club. No, 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 no. I'm not saying read a book. I'm just saying I know implementing not. change. So Nick, you were really good about describing two dozen different tactics to change in your business. So how does a small machine shop owner, much like Jim Carr, what are the five things that you, after reading this book, what are the five takeaways that you got that you could say to a machine shop owner my size, these are probably the highest level things that you need to focus on in the next 12 months? Yeah, no, I can answer that, Jim, just based on the fact that we do these book studies. When we do our book clubs, we don't want to just do a book club and just for the sake of doing it. Like that doesn't do you any good. You want to actually like take action on some things. So like with this particular book, you could read through the whole book and there's 75 different things you could do. And like you said, as oh, there's a small, probably 175 yeah, whatever, things. There, as a small owner, there's some aren't even relevant to my situation. I think all in this book would be relevant, but you can't do them all. So one of the things that we did is that we picked out one concept and we said, okay, we think that this is going to make a big improvement for right. us. Right. Okay, so there you go. You didn't talk about it in your summary, Nick. And I can't think of what the term is that they use, but there's a term where before they went into battle, before they had an objective they had to go after, there was like a standard operating procedure. They had a different name for it besides yeah, I, standard operating procedure. I know what you're talking and about. And they I gave suggestions that. as to how to go about executing 
that standard operating procedure. Now, this is how we apply it into our business. I mentioned before that we have an integration scheduled to install vending machines every single month. Well, we have a standard operating procedure for that. But when we read the book, we got some new ideas as to how we could make that better based on the teachings of the book. So we went back and said, okay, we're going to implement this into our integrations when we do installations of vending machines. And so that's how we took a piece out of it. It wasn't very onerous, but it still made the company better by implementing this best practice and got some ideas. And to out answer of your it. question about the size of your company, like everyone can take extreme ownership, but not everyone can decentralize the command. So what I mean by that is like if you have three people in your company, you don't need six departments. You throw some <laughs> ideas. Yeah. When you read a book right. like this, you throw some exactly. ideas out. Right. Yes. right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like and you just breeze past them, you're like, okay, right. that's great, like that but- would work if we were this size. Or as you grow, it's like, all right, as I grow, I know I'm gonna decentralize this. It's gonna stop being my thing. It's gonna start being the owner of this functions thing. But until then, I have three people in my company. I have five people in my company. And that's what I mean. I sometimes think we give a lot of information and a lot of people just don't have the wherewithal to execute all of those things. Well, it's the same thing with like making chips. Okay, we've done 350 episodes. We've talked about a lot of different ideas. Yeah, take one away. I mean, like take one a quarter. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to do every single thing that we talk about, but listen to every episode. There might be one great idea that you get out of it. And that's why I tried to draw parallels to like things we're actually doing in our company that coincide with this book here. So really at the end of the year, it's always a time of reflection for me. Oh, 100%. I love that time of the year. That's when I do like a leadership book instead of like a specific sales book or something, right? And the more I grow into my career, the less direct control I have over the outcome because I have a bigger team. And so it's like, it becomes more about what my team members can achieve than what I can do on my own. And so it's like, all right, but I still have to take ownership over that. And so for that reason, this was a really good book. And by the way, you can get it on audiobooks too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And actually this guy's got a whole like YouTube channel and he does a podcast and really good stuff. So hopefully there was something that each of you could take away. And more importantly, something that our audience can take away from extreme ownership for the manufacturing leader. So one thing that we always do is we decentralize the close of the episode. So I'm not going to say it. Someone else is going to have to say it. What I've learned is if you're not decentralizing, you're not making ships. And if you're not making ships, you're You're certainly not making money. money. Bam. Bam. Thanks for listening to the Making Chips podcast. Jim and Jason knew that the metalworking nation, the community of world-class makers, needed to commit to a new way of leading to stay ahead of the competition. So, Making Chips was created to fill that void, to give you advice from other manufacturing leaders who can push you to take action. Your manufacturing challenges have a solution. And many of them are at makingchips.com.